You know, son. What? Did you have to? After what? The doobies. The what? In Amsterdam. You know I know about that. That didn't pass me by that you couldn't pass the McMillan drug test. I know you were smoking on the weed then. I've been meaning to talk to you about that, but we've had these other things. Yeah, had some other things. Doobies. Stop. That's annoying. Well, that's what started all this in Amsterdam, because you were smoking on the weed in Amsterdam. Obviously. That's what started all this? That That's the jellyfish? The what? It's when you try to solve a problem, you just make two more. Why is it called that? Jellyfish. Gotta be careful when you're trying to get rid of them. Try to spear them or something. Just turn into two jellyfish. There's too much on my mind. There's too much on my mind. And I can't sleep at All right. night. Just calm down, Burbs. Just focus. You can do this done this a bunch of times do not let the pressure get to you the knowledge that the producers writers actors and other people who created the show patriot are actually listening to this podcast don't so much pressure okay i got this i got this everyone hi hello welcome to another episode of mcmillan men this is the show where we talk about the amazon prime program patriot my name is Luke Burbank. Right over there is a fellow Macmillan man, Andrew Walsh. Hello, my friend. Hello, Luke. I'm taking a completely opposite approach to the show today. I will, okay. be, I will be burning many bridges, and I cannot wait to start lighting those matches. I have this picture. Ever since the creator of Patriot, Stephen Conrad, made contact this week, I have had this image in my mind of where this show is actually playing right now, and I'm sure it's 100% wrong uh, in terms of where it's playing related to the people that worked on Patriot. I assume most of them are now working on Perpetual Grace Limited, uh, the next show that Stephen Conrad has done. And he mentioned something in some tweet or whatever that, that they're listening to the show. In my mind, they're working in somewhere in like... I don't know why it's like Marina del Rey or something or, or Culver City in a big kind of converted like it used to be a warehouse. They used to like used to be a a furniture factory. But now it's one of those places with polished concrete floors and big open spaces. And they all work at these desks with large Mac computers. And um, is somebody, you know, probably skateboards to work. And amidst all of that in creating this other TV show, someone is just playing this podcast aloud to the entire room. Now, that makes no sense. That would be a violation of multiple HR policies, and also it would just be distracting and annoying to people. But in my mind, that's this is being played in the, the, the sort of nerve center of all things Patriot right now in that kind of format. 
I think either you're 100% correct <laughs> or they're just stuck in traffic somewhere in L.A., which is also a possibility. It, I think what it really means is Stephen Conrad dips into the show, listens a little bit, and then maybe uh, during a meeting uh, mentions something offhandedly about what – about about this is a bit of sort of focus group feedback. I, a focus group of two, you and I. <laughs> um, that's the alternative version of this. Is he listens to it in his car and then occasionally says to the other folks, "Hey, uh, yeah, that people were confused about uh, you know whatever." Insert detail. Well, yeah, I mean, this is what's um, really interesting to me. So to catch people up, um, we launched season two of this podcast last week. This will be episode two now, and we have a new fancy special feed for it. And when we posted it, uh, Stephen Conrad retweeted it, and you and he reached out to you and said, oh, this is interesting. I could answer some of your logic-related questions about the mm-hmm. the logic of the show and how, you know, how things connect from A to B to and fro. Sure. And so yeah. I think it's really The structural dynamic of DMs, <laughs> and I, I think, think, is that chapter nine of that book. The timing could not be more fortuitous for me because this episode, episode two of season two, um, is the one that has befuddled me the most. And I've thought about really? it a lot since, and we'll talk about it when we get to it in, in the in the. Sh- part of the show but this is the one where my brain has for the past two years or whenever i watch this episode it's hung up on a process point in this episode that i'm dying to talk to you about and actually knowing that we do kind of have their ears and the fact that we might have an opportunity down the line to have steven on the show to explain some things i'm really excited to talk it out i mean am i a little self-conscious talking about it maybe i mean no offense but there's just one process thing that's driving me crazy about this episode and now it's really exciting to be able to talk it out and maybe get some answers so this episode is, as you mentioned, Andrew, season two, episode two. It's titled The Vantasner Danger Meridian, which is um, this fascinating concept that I'm, I'm wondering, Andrew, do you want me to tell you if it is a real thing or if it was made up by the folks who create the show Patriot? Well, yeah, because we, we speculated about this on the show last week, and I did a really quick search online. Did a little mm-hmm. um, what's not goo? I did a little quick Bing search. Uh, oh while... sure, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to former sponsor of a different program, <laughs> Bing. Oh sorry, I did a duck duck go on this while you were um, we talking. Alta Vista did, <laughs> and we were able to. And I was very confused because I found one document that was really really detailed and seemed like it was from a scholarly journal. But I also know that with passionate fan bases. Uh, like this one, sometimes people will create these things in honor of the show. So I'm dying to find out. You have an answer about that, huh? I do, because I reached out to Stephen Conrad, creator of the program, Andrew. That's just the kind of direct access I now have uh, to the Patriot verse. And I asked, hey, well, I'll just read you my – I'm so obsequious because I'm still, like, geeking out over this. Hey, man, I'll try not to abuse this frequency – but we were wondering last week if the Van Tasner Danger Meridian is something you guys made up or was that, quote, real read pre-existing? Um, and he said, new phone, who dis? Which hurts. <laughs> I can't he believe hey, I fell for that. <laughs> said, hey, Luke, it's never a problem. Glad to provide clarity anytime. We made it up. They did make it up. That means some they made beautiful it bastard out there created yes. this scholarly I mean, journal based yes. on it. I had a feeling. I was leaning in that direction, and I'm so glad it's right. 
I hope it's okay with him that I'm reading this on air. I assume it's fine. He says, Leslie will get more deeply into it in Structural Dynamics of Flow in a subchapter entitled (laughs) The Van Tasner Danger Meridian Relative to Pram Clamping and, say, Trying to Sustain a Long-Term Affair with Your Secretary, Joyce. Book. Now we know we got to have a special episode dedicated to his book when it comes out. Oh, oh are you kidding me? God. That could be a whole season. I love. How that are we he's getting even more specific world. with this? I know. <laughs> I I have to say I'm extremely oh uh, I'm extremely chuffed that we're now getting <laughs> we're sort of getting a preview of that kind of stuff. We've cranked out, what, uh, uh, almost 3,100 episodes of TBTL. I've never seen anything yeah. as funny as just the name of that chapter. For, for, those, for those who missed it, it went by pretty fast. The Van Tasner Danger Meridian relative to pram clamping and, say, trying to sustain a long-term <laughs> affair with your secretary, Joyce. Oh, man, I can't Beautiful. wait. All right. Okay, did he give so, you any other insights? Because you told me earlier that he that was it. Some that was the big That's insight. It. Okay, good. Is that the Van Tasner Danger Meridian is a thing that they made okay. up? But again, it, it's it goes to the just absolute genius of this show, which is everything just sounds like it could be a real thing. Mm-hmm. Like their ear, their ear for stuff like this is just so to me sort of pitch perfect that like. Basically, if the Van Tasner Danger Meridian didn't exist, I'm glad it now does because I feel like I may factor it into my real life. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if the math holds up, but it's just this idea of, like, the point at which things become so dangerous. If, I, if I'm if i sort of – I'm paraphrasing here, but if I understand Tom Tavner's description of it, it's sort of the – it's the point at which this thing is so dangerous it's not – worth doing the danger becomes exponential i think am i am i getting that mostly right that is my understanding of it it is a very dense kind of do you mind if i just play the tape from that part of the show no i would appreciate that because it's better than us trying to paraphrase it probably so this is when we go into these uh flashes of tom being deposed this is apparently from the deposition while i wait for the tape to get exactly where i need it to be can i say one thing about uh these deposition tapes that I had a theory about when I watched this series for the first time, Um, you know, there's a clock in the corner, right? It's February 3rd, 2017. Mm -hmm. And there's a little clock and it's just to kind of, I think indicate to us, the viewers that this is the official record of of this deposition. And the clock is at 1152 35 and it's counting up and it's getting ever closer to, I assume noon, guess midnight, but, I'm assuming noon. Um, And I don't know if I read too much Watchmen or whatever, but I Hmm. was getting really excited slash anxious about that clock because my theory was when that hits noon or midnight, something big is going to happen. And that'll be like either the end of the episode or that'll be the last we see of the deposition. I was completely wrong about that. At some point, I think it just rolls on to like 1201 and life goes on. This show will do that to you because it's so dense. So here's I'll 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 see your speculation and raise it a even more absurd thing. So this one of the first things that unfolds in this particular episode is that John finally gets his chair. Yeah, and he gets it. You know, his kind of um, I guess you what would you call him? His his uh, the Robin to his Batman, the the Penny to his Inspector Gadget, like. 
that guy is just you know that guy is it could have his all own series basically yeah. Yeah. but he gets the chair the chair is in first of all weird to me the actual chair they pick which i feel like is not um ever an accident like of all the chairs they go with it's kind of too modern but it's is apparently still a lazy boy like i don't know why it just feels like a weird chair to me but anyway, I paused it because there's that there's this, that really amazing scene where John's kind of fixer guy and the cop who had his therapy dog, Charlie, stolen, they have this whole great conversation. Now, I paused it because one of the things that's cool about this Amazon feature is when you pause it, you get all the information about everybody on screen. You know who never shows up in that information stream? Hmm. John's handler. Really? Now... I don't know if that really? was just this episode. It was just a glitch. But I'm talking about – and by the way, I don't smoke weed. Um, this seems like a very like weed-fed You're not smoking delusion. on the weed? I'm not, I'm not smoking on the weed. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love that, by the way. It's like – anyway, we'll get to that probably in a minute. But I was watching this last night, I guess rewatching it, and I was just thinking like, is that – is that a subtle thing? Are they not including him in that screen because of like, you know, an assistant has no name. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's probably just a friggin' glitch with Amazon. But that's where your brain goes sometimes with this show because things are so intentional. Right. That you kind of sometimes can't tell when it's just somebody didn't code in this dude's credentials, if you will, for this one um, section of this episode of the show or is Conrad messing with us? Right. Or was he ever there? Okay, I'm going to play this right. tape for you. This is from uh, Tom you. talking directly to the camera or to, to somebody off camera who's uh, asking him questions, who's interviewing him, uh, him explaining the Van Tasner Danger Meridian. You might want to ask if we'd... Well, if we'd quickly pass the point of no return. Next. But that's not how we assess events such as... You can always return, but what do you come back with? And does what you bring back justify the toll and the breaches and the transgressions and the occasions you didn't go by the letter of the thing? So that's not the line we talk about when we assess. How do you assess? We assess impending events in terms of danger. In terms of the danger to the viability of the task and to the men and women who perform it. And the line we try to bear in mind in stages like this is the line past which danger of both those sorts increases exponentially. It's called the Van Tasner Danger Meridian, this line. That's the term we use to explain conditions of encroaching and encompassing grave danger. I might still be a little bit too stupid to fully understand that, but it sounds like no, I think it's we're grasping it. I mean, it's, once it's, you go it's just basic past yeah. a certain point, there's there is yeah. no going back because things are exponentially dangerous. I think, put in simple terms, it's just we. He's what he's saying is, you know, you you guys use a certain kind of metric or criteria for deciding when something should or shouldn't happen. We have a different metric, and it's this weird thing called the Van Tasner Danger Meridian, and it basically is our way of deciding when something is too dangerous to the people, to the mission, to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And because it's made up, I, again, I don't know if the numbers pencil out. I swear to God, if Conrad has made this actually mathematically sound, mm-hmm. if he's, like, proof to this, 
give him a Nobel Prize. But like, I I think that that's. I mean, and, and by the way, I don't. Just if we can start a little bit from the beginning of this episode, uh, in true form, things are jumping around a little bit. We actually start this episode starts before the other the previous episode ended. It's Alice still in the states talking to Edward about John getting hit on his bike, and she I think accurately intuits that uh, that that basically John's trying to either kill himself or get so hurt that he doesn't have to do whatever it is he's supposed to be doing. Then there's the great scene again uh, with the assistant and the service dog cop. I don't know why I wrote this down, but I just love the specificity of this. Uh, Sergeant Glenn Purdue announcing through this previously open door, <laughs> my right to exercise a plain sight search. <laughs> and then that scene, which, I mean, actually, that could have also been... Um, that could have been intro tape as well. Yeah, it was uh, so when funny. the assistant says "fuck," uh, did you say "fuck"? No, I, I said "come on in." Yes. Uh, by the way, I'm also not seeing him uh, on my Amazon X-ray, okay. so I, it's not okay. a, just a ghost in your machine. The plot, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that tape. I almost opened the show with that tape. It is it's so one good. of the best laugh lines, definitely of the episode, maybe of the uh, of, of the season so far. Uh, that, and of course, we'll talk about later. Um, I was, I just was dying watching Leslie in the Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Oh, my I God. Mean, just one of the most Seriously. memorable scenes. Are you the occupant? Yes. No. Well, both. I'm, cur- I'm currently occupying the space. Yes. <laughs> I am the head lazy boy. He's just That's like, just a- he's such a bad liar, but an enthusiastic liar. Like, we saw yeah. that a little bit when he's just, when, when um, John tells him, you're my husband. Okay, yeah. honey, we have to talk. Yeah. What he lacks in sort of nuance with it, he makes up for in just absolute commitment. Yeah. Like, he will ride that thing down to the deepest depths of whatever with no one believing him at any point until the very end because they're like, no one would no one would go this hard with this lie. The head of lazy... I am oh, the I'm, head lazy boy. I'm the head lazy boy. Why would you go with that? That's so unlikely. Just say you're a delivery dude. Uh, I love the Van Tasner Danger Meridian as an as a title for this episode because it's such an interesting concept to me. I feel like it could have also been this could have just been called the "That's Cool" episode, yeah, yeah. because it you know coolness, which has obviously been a running kind of theme with Cool Rick stuff and um, and and the the Cool Rick's kind of doppelganger, all of that stuff. And John, it's, but it just comes cool up all the time. Yeah, right. Everybody, and it's pretty funny too because it's like. Whenever John is talking about something being cool, it's never cool, right? Mm-hmm. If that I can remember, it's almost never cool. It's like he's just saying it. Um, and then when Rick is saying it, it's usually something dumb that doesn't matter that he's fixating on it being cool. Yeah, that's cool, man. But yeah, that this that is a that's a that's a word that shows up all over this episode. Yeah. Um, and so we start with oh, one thing that is revealed actually after uh, Alice has her kind of. I don't know, run in with this police officer who's trying to find John Lakeman. Um, We get the answer to how she ended up with the dog in France that we saw in the first episode. That was kind of an outstanding question uh, last week, although I I think I tipped off that somebody had kind of reminded me that this was coming. We see Alice follow this police officer to the bar where he's meeting other police officers, and she just kind of sneakily walks off with his therapy dog. So now his therapy dog has been stolen twice by the same family, and clearly she's doing it because she knows she's going to go on this mission to kind of, quote-unquote, save John and that he needs this therapy animal. 
Well, that's interesting you said clearly because I actually had that as a question mark. I'm I'm sure you're right, but because there was no way there there would be no way that she could understand that that cop with all of the sort of like um, you know various uh, social and anxiety related uh, disorders. I don't think there's any way she would figure out that he's actually got this more figured out than he's in like the top five of people that have figured out what the hell's going on with Lakeman, Mm -hmm. or at least, you know, he's piecing together all of this information and he's like, okay, let's go do this. It's like, you know, something to the effect of as long as I have Charlie, I can do anything like, so you don't think she's, she's not stealing the dog. So as to kind of, um, uh, disable this guy's ability to, to to come after her husband. She's stealing the dog oh. because she thinks she understands that it's something that her husband. If her husband stole the dog once, it's obvious that this dog calms her husband, and so she's doing it to help John. She's not doing it to to mess up their investigation, right? I don't oh, think there's any way she so, could know that he. That's so smart. Well, I I don't I know I don't know that Luke because you raise Only a really we good had point. Stephen Conrad's <laughs> information. Uh, I mean, it could also be kind of both, and maybe you're supposed to question the motivations. But in my head, I just saw it as. She knows that her husband is broken and getting more broken yes. by the moment. She wants to say that, him, but this idea that I think that's he, but he lays out a lot of that, stuff. The fact that he is in John quote unquote Lakeman's uh, apartment, asking a bunch of questions about John Lakeman and putting things together. She now does know that he's starting to piece things together. So it could be dual motive. Yeah, I, I, I to me that this sort of Occam's Razor uh, answer is. Her her husband is hurting. This dog seems to help her husband. I'm bringing the dog to my husband. That's kind of what I'm guessing. But you do your heart does break for these for this you know gang that can't shoot straight of these of these sort of you know desk jockeys misfit who've toys. all been who yeah misfit toys on three uh, you know all like, the police all the little groups of police have nicknames for themselves right well I mean I guess the women's is not for themselves. But they're called stockings the, and skirts. Yeah, and then the other guys in France were the Department of Tough Cool Guys. They specifically call themselves right. that. Now these guys call themselves the Misfit Toys. Speaking of which, we're going to see the Tough Cool Guys, or at least one Tough Cool Guy, um, uh, a lot this episode. So we go from the the theft of the dog to now all of a sudden we're back in Paris. Alice, remember she left. The cafe with Agat's daughter. They've been driving around, and I guess she just doesn't know what to do. So they've clearly come back. She's come back to where John and uh, Tom are, and now they're going to drive off together. It's interesting because you or don't. Or they hear, found her. I feel Can like, I just say, or they found her because she's kind of parked. Remember at the end of the last episode, she's kind of parked on the, the side of the road. I think isn't that when she gets the phone call from Agat or the daughter mm-hmm. does, and she's stopped and kind of like on the side of the road, not knowing what to do. And then in this shot, they it looks like they're approaching her parked car. So I'm not a hundred percent sure that she turns back around to the diner, but I could have been seeing that wrong. Well, it's interesting how contrite she is in a way. Like, I don't know if it's all just getting on top of her or not, but I think of Alice as actually being a quietly strong character. Oh, yeah. And in this is the one time where she's just like, I, you know, again, I'm doing this from memory, but she's sort of like, I didn't know what to do. Or I don't, does she even apologize maybe? It's just like a very kind of, it's a much more, uh, I don't know what you would call it, kind of submissive version of Alice than I think we've seen so far which just stood out to me because it's not the way their character is usually behaving yeah everybody's Um, getting pushed to their limits yes totally so they jump in the car they start driving um and they that's when the the van tasner danger meridian sort of comes up again because we're cutting back and forth with this 
with the, the, the piece of tape that you already played, Andrew, with the deposition. And then they're in the car driving, and this is huge to me, or at least hugely interesting, because it's like the first time that I feel like John is pushing back on Tom in even the most mild way that is somewhat satisfying to me as the viewer, which mm-hmm. is Tom is, is trying to give John shit about the doobies. And it's like it's like you can just honestly, you can fuck right off, Tom, <laughs> with this like uh, you're not talking to your 23 year old stoner son who works uh, at a um, roller rink in, you know, Bemidji, like who can't get his shit together. You're talking to your son who you're constantly putting in harm's way, who you have subjected uh, to you. You've you've subjected him to all kinds of psychological and physical torture a lot of it is your fault through just being inept and you're going to bust his balls that he has to smoke weed to get over it. I mean, come fucking on. Yeah. I mean, you, you were, you were disliking Tom's approach yes, to fatherhood fair. for a long time. Accurate. And I definitely think that, uh, it's paying off for you here. I don't think that, I don't think you're, let me put it this way. I don't think you're reading too much into that. <laughs> I think that's but all then, right there. What I found to be somewhat for me, kind of like a, Oh, God, finally, is that when John starts to sort of list, again, in his very understated John way, the issues that were beyond his control, like the private plane, which wasn't that private, Mm -hmm. and, you know, like, stuff like that. He's basically saying, bro, you really fucked me with this, and now you're mad at me that I'm smoking weed? Like, that ain't, that's not the main problem here. Yeah, absolutely. He's standing up to him. I mean, the dynamic is interesting, too, because it does sort of, I mean, Tom is actually treating his son like a teenager, which is galling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and John is sort of reacting like a teenager and just being kind of blunt. And, I mean, he's not saying anything inappropriate or wrong, and we, the viewers, root him on during that. It's good to see him stand up for himself. But it's interesting how I, I think about this a lot in my own life and in other people's lives, how um, parents have this ability to... Uh, take us back in time (laughs) like the sometimes power dynamics just never change right and when i go home and i'm staying with my parents suddenly you know you might hear me saying things like but i want to watch the browns game now (laughs) you know and you're like who am i i'm 40 yes (laughs) totally you're you're so right um we then they get pulled over we go to the credits and we come back and one thing that is very clever about this little scene – well, there's there's a couple things. One, I love the way that they – I don't know if it had to do with how they shot it or how they edited it or both. I don't, enough, I don't know enough about filmmaking, but I love the reverse on the shot between Tom's perspective and John's perspective. You know what I'm talking about? When they're pulled over in France, are we talking about? When they're driving. Yeah. I think it's like maybe it's – is it right before they get pulled over? Maybe it's when they're arguing. Like the way that – they take, you know, uh, Tom is driving, but Tom is pushed. Oh, you know what? I just realized they're in Europe. Maybe that actually. I still felt like there was some. Like there's an interesting use of negative space in that in in the shot of the back and forth. Does that make any sense? Yeah, they or don't. Am I just am the, I overthinking it? And just because they're in Europe and the the, the steering wheel's on the other side of the car. No, I think. I mean, looking at it now, it is an interesting design choice because y- y- this is a conversation between two people in the front seat of a car. I think a more traditional way of doing it would be you just have the shot through the windshield and you have both people in the frame, and then sometimes you might push in on one of them. But this whole 
conversation, you're right. You only see one person in the frame and the camera's pushed over so much so that the side view mirror <laughs> is like um, very prominent and you only see one of them per frame. And I, I wonder if I didn't notice that, but I wonder if that's kind of telling about the way that they're very close mm-hmm. in proximity right here, but are feeling very uh, far apart as far as what they're saying. I liked it from a visual standpoint. Another thing that I thought was very clever about this was they do not subtitle whatever it is the cop says yeah. to Aget's daughter. Yeah, that's important. like, and I'm telling you, that was. I mean, that will keep me up for weeks. Mm-hmm. Not really. I drink a lot of cough syrup before bed, but it's just like I'm like, ah, oh, I want to. And of course, you know, it's my fault for not speaking French. But it's just like that's so genius because we we don't know at this point anyway what was said. What unfolds is truly weird, and maybe you can explain it to me. I do not fully understand that scene where the cop hands him the gun and starts talking about basically Disney World Europe. Yeah, I think this is my understanding of what happened. Um, the you know Tom says I don't speak French, uh, so the cop. Oh, and then the little girl uh, says some. She she yeah. catches the attention from the back, right? And I think she. I think we can learn. We learn from context that she must have said, "We're going to Disneyland or whatever it's called over oh, there." And then, if you listen okay. to what the cop says, he says something about. You hear the word that is related to family. I don't know if it's familia or what it is, but. You as the viewer who speaks English and not French like me, you think that he's asking her that she has spoken up and then he is asking her, is this your family? And then you hear her say no. But what you later learn is she probably for some reason, the little girl is covering these folks and she says, we're going to Disneyland. Then the cop goes to the back window and says, did you get the family pass? And she says, no. And then that's when he tells Tom to get out of the car, shoot yourself right now, because if you're going to Disneyland and you don't, and I don't think it's Disneyland, whatever it's called, if you're going to the Disney yeah. park and you don't get the family pass, you might as well just shoot yourself now. I mean, it's definitely over the top. It's strange credulity for a little bit, but I think that this show is just kind of getting a little bit more bonkers and surreal, and I'm here for it. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those moments where it's like, I'm waiting. Now, we're. I think this is the last episode that I've actually watched already once. Oh, okay. So I'm really going to be moving into uncharted territories. But even this, I don't know if I was, I don't know. I, th- there's still moments where I'm like, wait, do I remember this happening? And that's one of those ones where it's like, I'm amazed that John doesn't, well, John doesn't have a gun. We know that much because that's a big part of this episode. But it's like you're kind of, as the viewer in that moment, I think, wondering, like, is John going to have to take some evasive action mm-hmm. here? Yeah. Because there's a cop with his dad. First of all, that could just blow the mission. Second of all, if this cop is, like, he's pulling a gun out, he's giving it to the, like, it's so confusing. And you can see, like, John trying to read the situation and, like, consider what his options are. Maybe it's start the car and run the cop over. I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. But um, but you do get the impression. That- you think, like, cause we've just seen John push so much. I mean, he is now abducted a little girl. Like, he's... I mean, right. again, it goes back to the title of the show, right? The Van Tasmer... Am I saying it right? Van Tasner Danger Meridian? Yes. Um, like, I think that we just learned what that is, and now here we are in a, in a, in a situation where you're being pulled over by the police. The jig is about to be totally up or 
John is probably going to have to become a cop killer, which, I mean, you want right, to talk about Right, which maybe for him is even a bridge too far. Yeah. Well, he doesn't do it. No, he doesn't. So apparently but, it did. Yeah. But, um, and it's interesting to see that at this scene, when uh, for a moment we see the cop through John's eyes, he's still messed up from the bike yes. accident, which is interesting. Yes. I know, which just gives me so much agita. Like the idea that he can't, he doesn't even really have much peripheral vision back. Mm-hmm. And he's doing all of these very, very painful, hard things like jumping off of buildings and shit. It's just like all of that happening through this tunnel vision. It just, it creates a physical reaction for me as the viewer in terms of just like, it's almost like, well, you know, if you had your full kind of complement of vision, yeah, you can jump off a building. But it's like, you're trying to do it, trying to, you do it looking through like a solo cup down, you know, at the ground of like, that's your, your sort of range of vision. It's, it's very stressful. Um, now, you mentioned this, and I agree with you 100%. Leslie in group, subtly snorting cocaine, is one of the funniest things. Is one of the funniest things I can remember from this show. It's classic Leslie, though, and that's what I love about it. Like, any other character is going to lie. You're snorting coke in your meeting. But Leslie is so weirdly obsessed with the truth that he is both going to snort coke, but he's also not going to lie about it, which I just find so funny and interesting about his character. Not only is he not lying about it, he's explaining in detail what he's done. I, we got to play this tape. We just have to. Yes. That was a Monday, 10 a.m., June 2002. The last time I did cocaine. I'm Leslie Claret, and the last time I did cocaine was when that guy was talking. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> you see, I had uh, I had some in the little crook um, area, my uh, index thumb crook area here, and. Uh, yeah, I I was pretending to listen to him. I I was I was in this this listening posture, but it was just so that I could do cocaine while I was here. <laughs> because I've been having going through some very confusing times. You can't do that in here, Leslie. I was doing fine, you know, feeling good, getting it done. And then this, this, this major a-hole, Lakeman, he shot me in the face. We've all made an agreement. Okay, I'm going to stop it there only because it's going on a little bit oh. longer, but it's a funny payoff, too, when he does it again a moment later. And he says, yes. did you just do it again? And then he gets kicked out of the meeting. Just fantastic. See you, losers. And then he's trying to leave through the wrong door. <laughs> What's he say? Feeling good or yeah. whatever. He says, this, this doesn't life. work anyway. Yeah. I love it. I mean, yeah, that scene is is so funny. You want, One wonders why did he go to the meeting if he's still doing coke, but I mean, who knows, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's addiction. Uh, I, I mean, I still think that, I mean, he's a he's a troubled man, right? Like, now he's on coke and he's, he's going to sort of try to just now 
play it off like he used to when he was addicted the first time, but he still has plans to reunite with his son, right? And um, Does he? Gonna... I mean, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to trust you. I don't think – that doesn't really come up in this episode, but – but, you know, because the last he got shot in the face as he was trying to set that up, he goes to the hospital, he gets gets wigged out on morphine, starts steal or whatever, starts stealing other people's meds. And then I think the next time we see him, he's at a group meeting snorting coke in the meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I mean, we haven't seen anything that says he's not trying to uh, see his son sure, anymore. Sure. So it's, he's probably very conflicted. He's probably he clearly loves drugs. <laughs> Right. I mean, I think a lot of people do. He loves being on drugs. It's an addiction. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you've ever danced with that devil in the pale moonlight of that particular substance, uh, his actions, uh, let's just say they square with the experience of people who've maybe uh, experienced that before. Um, But like I said, I find his character so fascinating because it's like on some it's like I just think most other people would react so differently to the to sort of relapsing the way he has, but he's at the meeting, but he's also weirdly proud of the fact that he's still doing drugs. He sort of looks down on everybody. He also says something kind of telling when he when he gets kicked out, which he says it doesn't work. Yeah, and I think what he's saying is uh, treatment or group or AA or NA whatever he's in doesn't work for him. Yeah, yeah, he does say that as as he as he heads out. Is that the last we see him this ep? I believe that's I where we leave the story. So. Yeah, yes. yeah, and then let's see. Oh, but now we have to get to the. Um, Police Guy. station, right? Lieutenant Guy Paul Poulian, who I have to say, last time, I'm not just saying this because there's a small chance that some of the people that produce the show are listening to this. But I think I was a little bit like, mm, last episode or whenever we first see Guy, I was like, he's a little extra. This is a little much. I actually think his character is pretty cool and interesting, to use that word, cool. I find him, and I'm sorry, I probably wouldn't say this on TBTL. I don't know why I feel emboldened to say it here. I find him difficult to see on screen. Hmm. He looks like a Pixar character from the movie Minions. Not even a minion. He looks like um, some other character, uh, or I don't know. He reminds me of a of, of a computer-generated character from one of those uh, movies. I can't place them. But it's just like his whole vibe. First of all, he's just sort of a vile dude, mm-hmm. the way he's talking about women. And then there's just something about his—he his, has the worst hair I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. He's basically a triangle. He's making Dennis wear his shirt. He's—it's the whole—everything about him— upsets me and i think maybe seeing him on on screen upsets me more because of all that than because i think that it's it's um it's not great acting or not great writing i think all that stuff is pretty good actually like i'm i was definitely there for it this episode him talking about the way he's about to talk to dennis yeah i mean well he's obviously a man of a certain body type but then the way he's made up of course you know kind of accentuates that with his hair slicked back like that but even aside from his physical appearance and everything he says we're now learning straight up that he's like a um, oh, what is what is Genevieve obsessed with like the MGTOW guys oh, men MGTOW. going their own way and and this kind of men's this this poisonous um, uh, what, what's the incel he's almost like kind of a I guess not incel because incel stands for uh, involuntarily celibate involuntarily but, celibate but he's no, he clearly like he's a kind real of a player yeah and a, and very gross and and he manipulates women and just talks right. about the best way you can use them as objects and get them to trust you more so that you can betray them and now he's about to lay that right on Dennis mm-hmm. who I think I know I I'm, now this will be the second time I, I'm saying this 
I think one of the funniest lines of this episode, I don't know, Dennis, just every time I see Dennis on screen, he says something or does something that I think is maybe the funniest part of this whole series. Um, One of the things that he says that's just such a like a throwaway line that I I wrote it down because it cracks me up so much is, you know, um, Lieutenant Lieutenant Gee comes over and he's like giving him coffee and he's kind of, you know, sort of telling him you're wearing my shirt and he's just doing all this stuff on him. And you can tell Dennis is like trying to kind of protect John's identity, but he also just really needs a friend. Mm -hmm. And when he says at the end of all this, like, do you want some more coffee? And he just says, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I don't know why the way he says, yeah, a little bit kills me. It's so funny. And him talking about in the way he kind of has the slip. I don't even know if it's a Freudian slip. I don't think so. Just the, the slip where he says you wouldn't you wouldn't tell if it was your best friend. And it's just like right. his obsession and then his Always, explanation he's of that. constantly saying, trying yeah. to sort of send out some sort of sonar to like receive the message back that they're good friends. He's always trying to figure out where does he stand in, in John John Lakeman's mind. And it's very charming. I mean, that's the thing. Like, he, it's, it's, it's both a pathetic in some ways, but also very winning characteristic of him. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, then we get to new character, Nan, being introduced. Who Now, again, I, I don't... I feel like I don't know if I'm at an advantage or disadvantage to talking about this show now not actually knowing what happens in the next episode. So I am assuming that Nan is going to become a big character because a lot of time is dedicated to her family and they're having lunch and they're talking about who's the most attractive and her dad is being very uh, diplomatic. And then there's a whole thing about wigs. And then, you know, this all leads up to realizing she's a detective. I'm assuming she's new again. Um, but I don't know that because I literally have not watched any more episodes of this show. So that's the sense I have. I don't know if I want you to answer that question for me or not. I just don't think this much time will be dedicated to someone who's not going to be a major character. Well, here, uh, the funny thing is I can't answer that because of a couple of reasons. I thought I was dim yesterday watching this, and I knew I was going to have to hmm. admit this on the show instead of looking it up on DuckDuckGo. Um, I can't remember where this goes with her. Uh, I'm on the edge of my seat to find out what her father wants to tell her when she's shopping for right. wigs and decides not to get one. He says, yeah. I need to talk to you about something outside. And then we when never... When you're done with the hair. When you're done with the hair, she doesn't get a wig, but we never know what he says to her. I went on a real emotional journey when I realized that Edward is not actually kidnapped because in the journey was furious at Edward because this whole fucking thing could have just ended with a get taking the money on the train except of course they've got edward that's why you know at the end of season one suddenly the stakes are raised again and then to realize it's him and dennis which you want to talk about forgetting things andrew i have seen this episode and got up to the point in this episode thinking god they've got edward like i forgot that it was dennis so i was mad and then I realized, I think, actually, as John says now, John feels seems increasingly emboldened to just fucking spit truth to Tom Tavner. Like, basically, Edward's just trying to get the money so he can throw it in the river so that this can be over. He is, in his own messed up way, trying to help his brother by just sort of, like, torpedoing this whole mission. Yes. Now, here we are. This is where – this is why this I, I'm is not even joking. Point. I have been kind of – I mean literally since episode one or us deciding that we are going to do this podcast, I've been kind of anxious about this episode because this is like a <laughs> one of the logic points that I can't puzzle out. And I'd love it if you can help me here. And if not, we got to get Conrad on to explain this part. So 
at the end of season one, when, like you say, the stakes get ratcheted up because he is abducted, we see a flash of him being abducted, right? It's um, about yes. four white guys. Yep. They look like white guys um, who abduct him. And, th- and we actually see a van pull up and he gets thrown mm-hmm. into the van. So my first question is... Which is part is, of why we believe he's really been abducted, right? Because right. it looks real... It ain't Dennis walking up being like, let's go. And so... I've been kind of obsessed with that, and it's been driving me crazy. And I did some looking on the Reddits today, and it seems like most people are comfortable with the um, with the solution that the whole show's bunk. No, just joking. Uh, people are okay with the solution that uh, Dennis or Edward and Dennis hired these kids to abduct mm-hmm. him so that he could tape it on his phone and send it to his dad to show the abduction. That's that's one mm. possibility. If you go with that possibility, I'm still really, really confused about the timeline of when Dennis is there recording and beating him up or getting beat up by him and breaking his glasses. It seems like he should be in the police station when this is happening, or I guess... I guess no. I guess this could be a flashback, right? I guess the I guess he could have done all of this this fake abduction stuff and they could have filmed all these scenes before he walks into the police station naked. That's got to be the only explanation. Hmm. I my my very small brain is tied up into a certain number of knots now. I, I'm trying to follow all of that. I know what you're saying and I do remember I do remember when at the end of season one, a bunch of people jump out and grab him. You're like, oh, shit, they got him. As the viewer, you very much believe that he's been kidnapped. And I've Um, gone back. They're not characters that we've seen before. They're not the Brazilian brothers. It's not the Barrios brothers Mm -hmm. who who, who kind of for some reason come to mind. Um, Good question. I mean, the, the part of so that's one question is like, yeah, did they just hire some people? And then the other question is, yeah, what is the timeline? And this is where it gets very confusing because people are jetting between Luxembourg, Paris, and Milwaukee like you do. And uh, when were Dennis's glasses broken? Dennis's glasses seem okay when he's in the police station, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, I think he's wearing his glasses. Was he not wearing his glasses? Let me double check that. But my memory is that he's wearing his glasses. And I, I have it in front of me right now. His glasses look fine when he's talking to the French detective right here. I don't see any tape or anything. Yeah, so uh yeah, the question is when would they have made that when would they have made that fake uh, you know beat up video with sound effects, etc. Mm-hmm. Where his um, mask keeps changing. Like you know, I mean, the it's so great. I mean, where to even begin with the continuity? Are you in the frame? No, dude. Yeah. I'm totally not in the frame. <laughs> um well, I mean again, I don't want to like I don't want to just I don't want to constantly bug bug I call him Steve because we're kind of tight now. Oh, Stevie, L- little Steve. I don't want to bug. St- I don't want. I don't want to bug Steve too much <laughs> over this. But maybe I'll. Maybe this week I'll ask him well, uh, to explain that, or, or he'll hear this. Although now the problem is, I don't want to set up the. If if we don't hear back from him after this posts, that'll mean even he, the creator of the show we're talking about, got bored before forty seven <laughs> minutes. I know that's which that's... would which would hurt my heart. Right. Well, he's clearly listened to more than I ever thought he would, but. Um, I, another option here is, and this is what maybe I, w- I would root for, is it sounds like he'd be willing to maybe hop on and answer some questions. So maybe we just like maybe we finish the series and we keep we keep a list of these questions, and maybe oh, yeah. we can we can ask him about it at some point. That's a good idea. Uh, that's yeah, that's exactly what we should do. Can you take a memo, Andrew? Mm-hmm. 
how who kidnapped uh, Eddie when it's really Dennis? Who are those people? And then when did that video get made? Um, yes, I actually have uh, other ongoing questions. Where is Aget going with the money, and who's Aget's other daughter? These are I have a sec a section on my on my uh, on my notes here of ongoing questions. Um, Tom is kind of I just just a very small point, but he's there are moments where I feel like Tom is being somewhat vulnerable with John, which I finally appreciate. You know, uh, maybe it's because John's pushing back. I don't know. But he basically just talks about how like how fucked this whole thing is, and I I think he's talking. I, is he talking about Cantor Wally? Is he talking about the Bagman when he says, "I thought if we just Dick Cheneyed him, we'd be done." I assume that it means waterboarded, right? No, you know it's funny. Genevieve was talking during this scene, and I even thought, "Oh, I don't think I missed anything." But I know the scene that you're talking about. I think Dick Cheneying him is when he shot Leslie in the face. That was the Dick Cheneying. Um, oh, because of the duck hunting, okay. and I think that he just learned that oh, now I he's on his way to France too, right? Isn't that what he said? Leslie I, is. Is that what he said? Hold on, can I just actually uh, play this clip and that yeah, way yeah, don't definitely have to, uh, fumble around here. They're in like a safe house somewhere right now. I'm assuming uh, it, they're in a very nice. They're in some fancy digs. Did you just interpret this to be like a some sort of a government safe house for them? I assume the government has lost track of them at this point, but yes, I assume they're hiding somewhere where people don't know where they are. Yeah. So what do we do now? Oh. Wait to see if having her gets us the bag back. Wait till she contacts you. Meanwhile, go get a gun. Cantor Wally arrives later today, son. I'm going back to Luxembourg. I have to deal with another jellyfish this guy with a girl's name. He's arriving. He's arriving in Luxembourg. Soon. There you go. Uh, police have filed a request to interview him there today. Okay. What does he know? They gave it some thought a lot. I didn't think we'd still be here, still doing this. I thought if we just Dick Cheney did his ass, that would be that. Hmm. So that's totally clearly right. what he's talking about. So yeah. he's about to be interviewed Absolutely. by the police in Luxembourg, not France. Got it. Okay, good. I'm glad that you clarified that because... I had lost track of the fact that that was Leslie. So basically, Leslie leaves re- leaves his group session, aka Coke party, and gets like gets on a plane and is like heading to Luxembourg. And then in that conversation, I believe shortly thereafter, what is revealed, I think, is that Ichabod is now in on this. Yes. Now, John, or I'm sorry, Tom. What do you what What are you oh, are doing, you Tom? Ichabod's. I think Ichabod is going to come up. I think Ichabod is going to turn out to be more reliable than we think. Maybe, but Tom doesn't know but, that. Tom right. did this no, in it's a, a just, bad idea. He flailed, and now he's bringing yeah, of more course, people into it. Because he sucks. <laughs> he's bad at his job. Like oh, you've man. crossed the bad dad Tasner Meridian, bro. <laughs> well, I needed a show title. <laughs> okay, we got there. Like, I mean, yeah, you're totally right. It's like. Ichabod, I mean, again, just because I like the way this show doesn't ever do the thing you think it's going to do, my guess, which now I am thinking it's going to do this, so maybe it'll have to zig once again. My guess is that Ichabod will end up being an interesting character in this and hopefully will 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 prove to be trustworthy or reliable or whatever. But it's like, yeah, of all the people, 
you get and and did Tom have to do some non sexual cuddling to get this deal worked out? We don't know. Oh right. I forgot that's about a big that. thing for yeah. that's a big it's a big carrot for for old Ichabod. I'm actually looking forward to that very I love that character mm-hmm. so Me much. Too. I that, that that particular actor, uh I believe his name I have it here somewhere, Julian Richings. Uh he's a Canadian guy. Uh, let me uh, more on that. Uh, I, I've kind of gotten in the habit of googling these actors and sort of IMDBing them and trying to figure out their other stuff. And of course, you know, uh, some of them are are sort of well known to American audiences. Kurtwood Smith, of course. Uh, Gil Bellows was, I think, on um, Melrose Place, maybe. Terry um, O'Quinn. And yeah, Terry O'Quinn. So some of these folks are are kind of well known, but then so many of them are just these amazing actors that. We have not seen in so many things, and even the um, the French actors that they're casting. Mm-hmm. So, like the guy who plays the lieutenant, I looked him up. He's been in like two other things. Nan has been in like two other things that have made their way to IMDb, which I think is just a complete um, compliment to the casting director mm-hmm. of this show that they're just finding great people who are really good at inhabiting these roles who haven't been in a million other things. And you know, my <laughs> my theories on this vis-a-vis Super Bowl commercials or TV shows on Amazon Prime is I love it when you put people in uh, that it's not always a celebrity parade, right? right? Because it can take you out of it, you know? And I think for the two most famous uh, actors in here, at least the ones that I'm the most familiar with, Terry O'Quinn and Kurtwood Smith, like, they're such good actors that they just inhabit these characters so well. I don't think about Lost, or I don't think about that 70s 70s show show? or um, RoboCop. Um, And it's hard not to think about RoboCop. Um, Mm -hmm. And then then everybody else who I was less familiar with, it's just, it's not distracting. It's not like, oh, it's, hey, it's that guy. Hey, it's that guy. It's just, and it's so much talent. I'm curious. And and again, if we can get this together to do either just a big post-mort with Stephen Conrad uh, on this like frequency, or if we end up going and doing a live show in LA, which is something that we've been, kind of kicking around as an idea like the the casting of like michael dorman aka john tavner aka john lakeman like he's so great in the role i wonder if because like i wonder if they cast somebody who you know over here in the states doesn't have as high a profile because they did not want the show to just be like zach efron is Mm -hmm. john tavner like I wonder if it was economics that they couldn't afford to get somebody uh, who is super well known to American audiences um, or if it was because they didn't want this to be that kind of show. My guess is that it was door number two or in this case, Dornan number two got wow. there. Thank you. The whole thing was a setup Andrew, for that. Take the rest of the show off. I wow. am on a hot streak and I'm going I'm just going to keep going with this. No, okay. um, like. But to your point, it's like there there are, are like two really well-known to American audiences, actors, and even though they are super pivotal to the show, they're not the person that's on the promotional materials. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a Kurtwood yeah. Smith vehicle, yeah. Yeah, and point. it's not a Terry O'Quinn vehicle, meaning it's, I guess, essentially a Michael Dorman video or vehicle, rather. And that's its own interesting thing, and I'm sure this gets into the economics of this stuff, and I'm sure that if they would have cast – um, somebody whose international Q rating is a certain thing that could have gotten, maybe the show would still be 
being made if it would have been and I can't I'm I'm so bad with like younger hunky male actors but like had it been somebody who has a kind of a profile already over here particularly in the states maybe the show gets more attention maybe access hollywood is mario lopez hey here we are live on set with um uh you know liam hemsworth or whatever right like but is that the show they wanted to make i don't know oh Um, i mean so anyway yeah i mean the show i mean listen i don't mean to turn this into a negative thing, but like this show hmm. is probably just too smart for the audience that gets the Mario Lopez interviews. You know what I mean? They're not. They're. I, mean, uh, I agree. Starting with the writing, you know, they're they're right. not going for that audience. But that's I feel the way that these projects can get really sort of way off course. Mm-hmm. Because imagine, I love that I have who have never created a television show. I'm now gonna hold forth on how TV shows go wrong. I could imagine a world in which you write this show, it gets greenlit, but they want to have, they need a big name to be the, the, the John Tavner character. And so you got to go out and get that person. And are they ideal for it? Maybe, maybe not. But that then means because of that person that you can get, the Mario Lopez interview. And I will tell you that, God bless, Mario Lopez is probably a sweet individual. I've never met him. He haunts my life because often what happens when I'm traveling for work is I get into the hotel room. The TV is already on. It's on Channel Zero, which is Mario Lopez trying to make me buy something called Jones Katami jewelry. But I have to go to the bathroom because I've been traveling for hours and I run (laughs) – to the bathroom in the hotel room the door is still open because it's just me i'm going to the bathroom however long it takes i am trapped trapped listening to mario lopez's inane chatter but what i could see happening to this show would be like the more that you want the show to, to have a wide appeal the more little sacrifices and compromises you have to make so it's like you know i feel like we've already had this conversation related to this show in one one way or another but it's just an interesting thing to consider that this show might have been able to be more popular, but I bet you they would have had to start to just slow. And it, it feel like each decision would seem like, well, it's not the end of the world. Like, mm-hmm. okay, so then we cast this other person because that's who the studio wants. Or um, this person is really big in this particular uh, country because they're from, you know, can we get Jet Lee in this? You know, and then you start just like parceling out the whole project. All in the service of making the project successful, and then eventually the project does not resemble the thing it started as. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like this show must really resemble whatever it was they started out wanting it to be. And that's um, how Peter Sagal just... ends up getting a writing credit on Dirty Dancing 2. Savannah Nights. Savannah Nights. I almost said Savannah Nights. Very different. Now that's a show I would have watched. <laughs> Savannah Nights. Anyway, um, so I just want to, if I can, also, and we should probably wrap here at some point but there are two moments that happen in this we'll call it the safe house that are just like emotional gut punches the one for me anyway is when john says to his dad when basically tom's kind of going like what's going to happen with alice and john says something to the effect of i think he says if I were her, I'd leave before the guy who's me in this story tried to touch me. Mm-hmm. Which I thought, I've, I've seen that twice, and I thought that he was going to go over and walk like walk up to her in the kitchen and maybe 
kiss the back of her head or something, but he does not do that. I think he probably just knows that something may have fundamentally changed between them because of what she has now been party to and witness to. But she's still a part of it, though. She hasn't gone running yet. Sure, but it's just a heartbreak because we know that, like, literally, other than Charlie and maybe one moment of making music with old Rob Saperstein, there is so little joy in John's existence. And Alice is the one thing that gives him joy. And now he basically, I think he is sensing a shift. And then I feel like that's sort of confirmed when she's talking to a Get's daughter. This is the next thing where she says, basically, there's nothing worse than hurting you. That is now like her point is, fuck them. If the, if, if the Iranians get a weapon and they blow everybody up, that's not that whole thing is not worth your life, little girl. And in my mind, and then the girl says, well, what are they going to do instead? And then she's like, well, they're going to do something else. Are they going to get hurt? And she says, probably. Mm-hmm. Like she's just like. Over my dead body, literally, you are not hurting this kid. This kid is no longer in play as a chess piece. This kid is not... Because I guess the question was, why'd you hurt my aunt? Um, which, if I was Alice, I'd be like, yo, that wasn't me. That was that other dude. But... <laughs> I don't know. That's how my brain worked. I don't know. Yeah. I was just there trying to save little kids, and this asshole was, like, kicking bathroom <laughs> stalls open. But I... Th- again, maybe it's just, you know, <laughs> through personal experience... But I'm looking at this as maybe an intense moment where we start to see their relationship kind of change fundamentally. I hope that's not the case. I hope I'm reading into it too much because I love the fact that she loves John because I feel like John needs somebody in his life. And um, uh, But I'm getting worried because what I feel like she's established there is the kid is more important. If John's going to go get hurt, fine, that's going to happen. If John's going to die, that may need to happen. No one's hurting this kid, though. Mm-hmm. But also— I kind of interpreted that as her having faith in her husband, knowing that mm. uh, he he's gone as far as he will, as far as putting a little girl's life on the line. That she knows that John and even Tom. I I don't know. I just took that as as her saying as a fact, not I will stand in the way of that. But these guys know that they've gone as far as they will, as far as using you as leverage, and they're not gonna they're not gonna hurt you. Or you just calm a child by telling them that they're safe. You know, I mean, both can be true. Yeah, I hope uh, you're right. And again, you've now seen the show, so you probably know more than I do. Goldfish, don't forget. (laughs) Oh, Goldfish, darling. Mm -hmm. Go listen to uh, 200 episodes of TBTL, and that will make sense if you're somebody who stumbled into this universe and doesn't know about our other job that we do. Um, Okay, then moving right along, we're getting towards the end here. (laughs) I have one. This is one thing I will say. I think it's a pretty funny idea, the sexless suit, the action boys mm-hmm. and the Dutch boys. Mm-hmm. But what I will tell you is Cantor Wally's like kind of – I mean this is actually – I think this is a genius scene because what Tom is trying to establish for the people interrogating him, if you will, is you don't know the person we're dealing with. This is the level of – this guy is the Bill Belichick of this shit. Mm-hmm. This guy has thought of everything down to like making sure that his security detail is f- Focusing on what they need to focus on, because if they're dressed normally, women will be trying to screw them, and we can't have that. The only problem with this is I think, honestly, they're a still lot hot. of <laughs> they're still hot, and those outfits are currently in style. I know. Like, I, know. I mean, not I mean, the haircut I have for seen the, the Dutch pe- boys oh, is definitely you, a step too far, me? don't you think? N- no way, dude. Yeah. Uh, have you looked at, like, a Topshop ad? 
Like, have you seen what Tyler the Creator is wearing when he performs? It's a thing. The haircuts? That, even even that haircut. I mean, it's a fashion thing. I wouldn't say, like, it's not most of the people you see on the street. But I promise you, if you go stands on a corner in Soho, for an hour you will see three guys with that haircut. And uh, honestly, those suits... Those suits are kind of working for me with the shorts. Yeah, and and the shoes. I know that that is the that is. Although one I feel like the shoes are inefficient. Coming. That's a question yeah. that I have. You're trying to make them look dumb. Okay, get that. But then you're giving them kind of styly shoes to wear with their suit shorts. Like, shouldn't you? If you want them to like, if those guys are running after me, I hope they're running after me in those shoes because those things seem like they'd be a nightmare on cobblestone. Yeah, that's a good point. Hey, uh, can I insert one quick thing here? Just another mystery Please. that the show throws at us is um, as John is walking out of the safe house, he stops at a parked car. I don't know if it's a car that yes, he, and he Alice, looks at the kilometer. He looks at um, yeah the odometer. So I'm putting that on my list of questions. Although that is such a specific thing, I'm sure it will be answered in the show, and I just have forgotten. But uh, I was like, oh, I don't remember that. Why is he looking at the odometer of that car? So another little mystery. Yeah. Do you think that you really have to be attacked 13 times in France to get a gun? That's a very specific number, and I my guess is that that is actually the rule. But now that I know that the Van Tasner is made up, it's like, who knows? I'm dubious. That's a, I don't, I feel really? like, yeah, maybe that's based on a kernel of truth, but I mean, I don't know. And again, I don't want to stick my neck too far out on that because it'd be easily uh, find out at a bull. Um, but yeah. uh, it's, it had a, it definitely had sort of a, um, a flair to it that seemed very yeah. patriot-y. So he's got to go to this building, John does, to jump off the roof to land somewhere else so he can get the record of who has been granted the right to have a firearm so he can then go steal that firearm from that person. I mean, again, there's just so many things about John's experience that are troubling for me. One of them that just jumps out is this idea that he knows he's going to be knocked out for 17 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if he lands it's just on so his head. so fucked up. Yeah. If he lands on his, well, shoulder first, and then, you know, you roll into the head. Like, oh, that's a... You, that scene, I mean, the whole scene with Dennis and Edward in the hot tub, oh, where that way it's kind of interesting. Shot how, is so great. It's so great. Also, I want to be in that hot tub, not necessarily with them, although they're invited. But that made me really want to go to like a Russian bath or something. It just looked very relaxing. There's one of them's got a beer. Other than oh, the fact that you know his brother's about to die. Yeah, and also though that goes back to my timeline question. So is this now? We saw the videos that he made with Edward. They recorded mm. it on their phone. He gets busted up. Then he goes to the police station. Now he's out of the. He's got to be out of the police station for this scene because of he's talking to yeah. Ed. Uh, he's talking to John on the phone. So this is clearly post police station. So we never really see him leave the police station. There's just, just right. something funky that I can't quite get my head around about the order of events with Dennis interacting with Edward in the context of Dennis also going to the police station and how that right. all times out and who those kids were 100%. Who, who throws them into the van. Because you get the feeling watching – I mean and the sense you have watching Edward and Dennis in that hot tub is they literally just got done filming yes. the like fake – the fake kidnapping be. video – and then they've just gone, and now they're kind of like toasting their success in the hot tub. Um, but that, like, that whole scene is great too, because of course John calls them, and he immediately—well, he knows already. 
that, that that they're not that Edward's not kidnapped. And he's like, I can hear the yeah. you know bubbles of the little thing. Great and then dialogue. He's like, just great. And yeah, that dialogue is so great when he's like, I'm about to jump off something, and he's like, land on your butt. That's what everybody thinks, but no, he's like, you know, talking about all of the ways you can die from that. And he's like, where'd you learn that? Jumping off of stuff school. It's just like, yeah, just great dialogue. Love it. Um, yeah. Here's a question for you. Do, do you think John thinks he might die from doing this? Mm, I could be wrong, but that is not something that I took That's away sentient. from it. Well, he's yeah. asking Edward to bring his guitar somewhere. Like yeah. him calling Edward makes me think he thinks he will survive it. Exactly. But maybe it's just John just so beaten down now by, by, by everything that he just looks at all times so forlorn. But it's almost just kind of like I don't know. It's to do this jump is it's a sort of it's like suicide light. You know, it's like yeah, you're you're doing something that's almost going to kill you, and you. I don't know. I just wondered if. If he wanted, I guess he wanted to call his brother because he wanted to get his guitar. He's planning he something. Yeah, I actually think it, yeah. I actually sort of feel the opposite because the specificity okay. of the seventeen minutes. He feels like he knows exactly what's going to happen. He's not saying, "Well, if you do," well, he's kind of saying, "If you do it right at seventeen minutes." But I think that John's got a confidence in his spycraft, and you know, sometimes mm-hmm. jumping off things and landing on your shoulder and then rolling onto your head is part of the spycraft. And he seems very—I mean, it doesn't seem like he's in a great mood about all of this, but he seems very confident that he knows exactly how this is going to go down. Yeah, you're right. He does. I think that's probably the one thing that he feels like he can reliably pull off relationships. He's not great at. There's Hmm. a bunch of things he can't do, but he can jump off of a thing and be passed out for 17 minutes and then get up and then go get the paperwork so we can figure out which Senegalese grocer Mm -hmm. he should steal a gun from. Mm -hmm. Isn't there something you never even hear a line, but that grocer seeing him, uh, you know, he's assaulted a million times, but then, but every time he stares directly into the screen, especially at the end when he has his gun, there's something like somehow that without even a single line, your heart swells for that guy. Right. And like, well, they've always, because even when every time he's getting assaulted, the moment before, like the jug of milk breaks over his head, he has a smile on his face. Yes. Right. It's like he just seems. And I mean, I, again, this is probably reading too much into it, but there has been a lot of unrest in France around immigration, particularly immigration from Africa. And there's sort of this I don't know. It tells a real story in a moment of this guy from Senegal who's just presumably just trying to pr- provide for his family. He's got this little store. He keeps getting completely fucked up, but he's his spirit is kind of in indefatigable. And again, I, I don't you know, I don't know if that was all thoughts that they had in their you know creation of this guy. But I chose to take that away from it. I mean, it's a whole little mini arc of a guy in this in this episode. Yeah, yeah, and 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 this show does well. It does almost everything well, especially cinematographically. Um, did I say that word right? <laughs> Do I say camera funny? Um, but uh, the montages they do are really good. I'm a, I'm a, um, yeah. I lo- I love a good montage. I hate a bad montage. Brian De Palma, <laughs> the Brian De Palma style montages are some of the worst filmmaking in the world. I cannot understand why that guy is so celebrated. Uh, but when it's done right, and like this show, the use of split screen when necessary and mm-hmm. never overusing it. But if you recall, like kind of the mm-hmm. the beginning of episode one of season two, uh, and just being able to tell kind of several stories at once, or um, or just kind of speed through time a little bit without making it feel rushed and always feels like very, you know, artful. It's just really well done. 
Yes. Would agree. And again, I'm now moving. I'm, I'm about to. I I feel like I know what Neil Armstrong felt like right before he stepped off the the lunar mm-hmm. module. Because you're at the, the end of your knowledge. I'm just about to step out into just the complete unknown. Yeah. And I would say the stakes. The stakes are equally high. I'm about to now start experiencing episodes of this show that I have never experienced before. It's a little hard for me. To not just jump into episode three right now, I might do it and then rewatch it next week. And I'll say, like, I I love this show, but I'd already watched them all once before doing the podcast. So I always wait until the night before we record and I watch it and I don't jump ahead. Last night, because, again, I'm kind of nearing the end of my memory of this as well because of my goldfish brain uh, and because of where we are in the storyline, like, I was watching this episode two with Genevieve and I said, I'm sort of tempted to watch episode three, but I feel like I shouldn't because I'll get confused when I talk to you about it today, Luke. And Genevieve said, yeah, don't. (laughs) She's like, you're going to get, she knows how my brain works. She's like, you're going to, she's like, I understand your temptation, but you're going to get too confused. If you move ahead, take advantage of your goldfish brain for now. And in your defense, this is an especially complex show for that. Like, you know, yeah, so but I'm like, the same way with um, uh, Barney Rubble. La- last Man Standing. Yeah, last Man Tim Standing. Allen. I was at Barney Rubble. What am I? What is like, the? What is the? the sev- last Man Standing. What's the seventies uh, cop show? Barney Miller is what I was trying to say. Oh, Miller. yeah. Anyway, do 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 do. Can I say one thing? Actually, yeah, you can keep doing that. I'll just pot you down a little bit and treat it like bed music. But um, God, fucking great intro song. Sorry. Uh, no, not at all. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sort of blabbing here, but I just want to say as you're about to step onto the moon or however you put it, mm-hmm. um, there is another episode that I have sort of circled on my calendar and it's not the next one and it's not the one after that, but later on in the season, there is an episode that I watched on the airplane that I love. It's, I mean, it's a great episode, but ever since I watched it, I've been worried about you watching it. It is mm. such an emotional ringer, and we're getting ever closer to it. I don't think I've said this to you on the show yet, but here we are in season two, and we're a mere few episodes away from it. And I'm fascinated to find out what you're going to say about that episode after you see it. I just hope that you'll still be emotionally whole after it. Wow. And by the way, again, this is not a huge tease. It's not. It's not some huge event. I'm not setting this up like you're not going to believe it when this thing happens or this person goes away or this person comes on the screen. It's not a single thing like that. It is just it's just a very emotional episode. Yeah. Uh, Again, I'm I am I am sure far overthinking this. But the other part of it is. We do know that there's at least some chance that the show is now being heard by the people who made the decisions to make the show in the way they made it. So I'm going to try to, I just want to say, in the words of Ringo Starr, peace and love, peace and love uh, to everybody who worked on Patriot, who, again, I like. it's not like 100 people are listening to this from Patriot. But I am going to try to give my honest assessment of things in terms of my experience, because I don't want to have to, like, if something really bums me out or if I'm really, like, not into what a character did, I need to 
I should say that just and I you know I might be wrong but that's my opinion so I'm going to do that because the idea of going into this episode where something happens and I just I need to be able to give my honest reaction whatever that is oh yeah me too and I, I mean but I mean I think we both no no, no you don't you need to you need to <laughs> toe the line you need that... to lie through your goddamn teeth <laughs> no actually which one of us we should wrap this up because now we're just getting into TVTL territory but which one of us yeah. do you think is more likely to hold back in this exact oh, situation we're talking about. Me. 100%. Yeah, because in a certain way, I'm almost like, I'm probably a little bit too callous. You go maybe. opposite. You're not callous, but here's the thing. I feel like you have really strong boundaries, typically. You are more comfortable than I am giving someone an answer that they may not like if it's true to yourself, because you'd rather do that than lie to them, because mm-hmm. then you got to keep your lie straight. Mm-hmm. I am lying constantly to try to manage everyone's experience so then everyone agrees I'm the best. So I, it's, it's not even close. I am more likely to like bite my tongue or soft pedal something because of being worried that one of the grips from Patriot will hear it <laughs> and be bummed out. Yeah, it's weird though because I also – though I think one of my overriding character traits is um, – is trying to manage other people's feelings, though, too. So it's kind of... Yes, but you just don't do it through what you say. You're not doing it through lying or through, like, sort of... You're extremely kind and thoughtful, and you're extremely trying... But you just do it... I mean, it's. I actually think it's impressive because you do it in a way where you're not... Like, you would say, oh, no, I don't eat that. You know, you would say that. You wouldn't be like, oh, sure, um, I'll have that, and then eat it and then be really sad, like if you went Mm -hmm. to a dinner party. Or like you, so you manage people's experience through your own way, but it's always very upfront. I think, and that's I think good. Yeah, I definitely have boundaries, but I'm um, also like I just, for instance, if you're if we were in like a group therapy meeting and you were doing cocaine, <laughs> you would probably admit to it. That is comparing me to Leslie is quite the high compliment, but um, yeah, but I also think that we're just in safe territory because yeah, like I have questions, like this whole timeline thing. I'm not beating up on the show. I just maybe really missing something here, or maybe there's a really good, interesting answer to for it maybe I, I i have no idea but um yeah. but we're just in safe territory because this is a show that we love and you and i said this when we started this thing out even if nobody was listening except for you and me we have absolutely no interest in doing a podcast that ends up kind of tearing apart the product like in a certain way we yeah. sort of did that with game of thrones a little bit i was really disappointed in the last few seasons of that show and so that got a little bit rough because it didn't i did not want to continue to do a podcast where it was just me saying negative things all the time, but also I want to be honest. So I, you know, I think a little bit with that show, I tried to find the positives, but it got difficult. We don't, we're not going to run into that with this show. Although, did you hear this? This is crazy. I didn't even find this out until we'd stopped doing Song of Ice and Spoilers. Drogon and Regal were listening. N- oh, no, really? Yeah. So those are Viserion the was like, eh. Yeah, which but, one is dead? Drogon which, and Regal. Which one died? How do you remember their names? I, I don't know. <laughs> I had to Google Game of Thrones. Oh, you just Googled names. that. Okay, good. I'm so glad that you Googled Yeah, you that. think I know those names. <laughs> I mean, off you top might. You're good with names and faces. Like, you covered Congress. I'm sure if you saw one of those dragons, you know, you would have recognized mm-hmm. them right away and been able to sure. go up and said, um, uh, yeah. Senator Drogon. Why, did, Congressman why didn't you Drogon. want it, Why didn't you want witnesses? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. We got to end the show. We're trying to, if it's a case, if it's a trial, why wouldn't you want to have witnesses? I think classically, Andrew, the listeners of this show think of you as the Leslie Claret character and me as the secretary Joyce character 
who yeah. he will later have oh, an affair with in the structural right. dynamics of flow. Or at least trying to. Hey, listen, to go out, instead of playing the usual um, uh, secret okay. agent man. A secret agent man. By who do we? It's Mel Torme's version we always play. Um, I would really yeah. love to go out with the song that I I don't know if this episode went out with this or just played it near the end of the show, but it's a song that I forgot that I love so much called Cosmic Charlie by the Grateful oh, yeah. Dead. I'm not a huge deadhead, uh-huh. and I hadn't heard it in years and years now, singing it all night last night. And, of course, Charlie being the name of the of the pooch in this show. Yeah. So let's go out with that if that's okay with you. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back here next week with another episode of Macmillan Net, uh, Men. Until then... Um, have a great week and remember to always keep it double great.